You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. I'm Pike Melinowski. When the writer Claudia Rankin was seven years old, she came to the U.S. with her parents from Jamaica. Her mother told her two things. And I, I'm not making this up. She said, you know, do not trust white people. That was her first order of business. The second was, you can never go to public school. Ever since then, Rankin has studied intensely all the little ways in which white supremacy asserts itself. When it comes down to it, you are still the non-person that you were when you arrived on the boat during slavery. Her groundbreaking book, Citizen, an American Lyric, from 2014, which is a collage of poetry, essay, and testimony about life in a racialized America, won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. In this podcast, we're revisiting a conversation from 2019 between Sunerifia and Claudia Rankin, as she takes us through the Western history of commodifying black people, onto the tennis court with Serena Williams, and into the era of Trump. Even though Rankin did not go to public school, there's still no way to escape racism in the United States. People say, what are you talking about? You went to some of the best colleges and universities. No public schools. No public schools. You, you know, teach at Yale University. You have a, a, you know, a great salary, a nice house, a pretty car, whatever. So you have somehow classed out of racial issues. In the United States, that's impossible. It's impossible to class out of racism. You know, we saw that with President Obama. When President Obama became president, things started to happen in the Senate that had never happened before. Um, at the State of the Union dress, address, one of the senators called him a liar. We had never seen that before. He was not able to pass anything through the House and the Senate. So anti-black racism is at the core. It is part of what makes America, America. And so even though you, on, on a kind of one-to-one level, can have relations with people and live a reasonable life, when it comes down to it, you are still the non-person that you were when you arrived on the boat during slavery up to now. And where did those attitudes come from? They came from Europe. They didn't, you know, they didn't spring up in the United States all on their own. There is a long history that um, was weaponized in the United States. But it is a long history. It's, it, I think it's Brian Stevenson who says that the North won the war, but the, the South... South won the narrative, yeah. Exactly. Um, Brian Stevenson, have you guys read Brian Stevenson? We love Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson, if I had to like replace a self with myself... <laughs> <laughs> You'd go for him. <laughs> I would go for Brian Stevenson. Yeah, he's he, amazing. He is amazing. He's a, he's a lawyer, um, 
after he graduated from Harvard Law, he went, he worked, I think, for a little while for the Seven Poverty Center. Then he ended up starting something called the Equal Justice Initiative. And he has gotten people out of prison who had life sentence. He has, it, it was a case that um, children were given life terms. He was able to get rid of that. He's also started a museum, a lynching museum, so that, um, like in Germany with the markers, we could have a historical marker for the institutionalized killing of black people across centuries. There is a horrific amount of black people in prison in the States. Yeah, and, and not accidentally. There's a great film called 13 by Ava DuVernay in which we have American, white American lawmakers who say this policy under Nixon and Reagan became the policy, this trumped up idea of um, drugs as a reason to incarcerate was, a, it was like a plan. It was like, I'm not gonna, well, we know of other plans, but it was like a plan to get, get rid of black people. And so the incarceration rates of black men especially um, was an organized effort by the state to get rid of the voting population of black people who would necessarily go um, democratic or probably would go democratic. And so it, it's, and now it's just, you know, people think, oh no, they committed crimes. No, they did not. Some of them did because every person is capable of everything. But the majority of people I mean, now that white people have been taking opioids and addicted to them, you no longer criminalize for drug taking. It is now a medical issue. But marijuana was a criminal offense because it was used as an excuse to incarcerate black people. There is no end to a lot of this misery, apparently, but there is, for instance, you and Brian Stevenson and a lot of other people who write, tell, talk, act. And, and one of the things that Brian Stevenson said, it's not that it's going to be about him, but I... Well, it could I, be about I, him. It could be about him because... Because he's my other yeah, person. I know. He could be, actually, I'm talking to your other person. But, but he said a lot about proximity, which I found so interesting that... This can only happen, all these things can only happen because we have isolated people in, I mean, there's no proximity between the power, the institutional power, and the people who live in poverty or have problems like that. He uses proximity in two ways. One is, um, he says that we should, as people, think proximate, like understand our capacities for change relative to the people around us. That it's not over there, it's here. Mm. And if you want, you know, people say, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. There is somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your community you could be helping. Um, there are policies at your job. There are things that affect others. Um, and that it doesn't, you don't have to be Brian Stevenson. 
You don't have to, um, you know, argue cases in front of the Supreme Court. So he uses it that way as well, but also in terms of thinking about um, our tendency towards indifference, which I think we all suffer from. I, I, I know I suffer from it. Not indifference exactly, but that sense that there is nothing I as an individual could do that would affect enough change to, for it to matter. And so we end up doing nothing. And what I appreciate with Stevenson is that he says, you know, you just got to start. And you see the man as someone who started and started and started and started. When, when you were going to publish this wonderful collection, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, you had to change publisher. Is that not true? That means that you did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. You know it's true. Um, I, I was living in London um, when George Bush was running for president. And he, I, you know, I was listening to the debates And somebody asked him about James Beard. And you might not know who James Beard is, but James Beard was a guy who lived in Jasper, Texas, and went to a party. On his way home from the party, he saw a white guy he knew. The white guy was with two other white guys. They said, you want to lift back? And he said, sure. They took him... So he willingly got into their truck. And he, they then beat him up, tied him to the back of the car, and dragged him along country roads until his limbs came apart from his body. So when they got him, they found like his head here, his arm there, down the road. They just, you know... And I, this thing was so horrific, it sort of imprinted itself on me in a way that nothing else had. And at that point, I thought, I need to rethink the way I work and write and engage the American public. And so I wrote, Don't Let Me Be Lonely. Partly because George Bush said, somebody asked him about it because he was mayor, he was governor of Texas at the time it happened, and they said, Bush, he's running for president. They said, so Bush, what happened with James Beard? Because I don't think I was the only one. I think the American public in general was a little bit devastated by this, this lynching by car that had just happened. And, and he said, oh, I don't remember. And I thought, you don't remember? And now you are going to be our president? You don't remember? And um, so I wrote, Don't Let Me Be Lonely. And my publishers, Grove Press, I was, you know, they had represented me for my two books before, and I loved Grove Press because they were an old press and they had represented Beckett. 
and people, writers who I love. And so I was like, they represent Beckett, they represent me. <laughs> I love Beckett, I must love me. Um, and they said to me, this is not poetry, and we, when you write another poetry book, we'll, we'll publish it, but we're not publishing this. And for a minute, I was upset. I was like, what? <laughs> um, but then um, I was luckily at a point in my career where there were enough other publishers who said, hello, you know, we'll take it. And Grey Wolf, um, who I ultimately went with, have actually been the perfect publishers for me. Um, they're fantastic. They have a kind of social justice agenda. They, um, they let me do what I want, <laughs> which is great. And, and, and they're, they're like a small family in Minnesota. Um, so it's, it's very easy to work with them. So in some ways, I, it doesn't feel like a tragedy. It feels like it was a, a gift in, in the way it all turned out in the end. There was another person you remembered in this context, in that context of, of Bush saying that, and that was your mother. You heard your mother's voice saying, you don't remember because you don't, don't care. care. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, you know, the voices that you keep, you hold, are your families, and then... It used to be, I could say, maybe Trump, but Trump has said so many things that are... Are, are like on, on the, he has managed to regularize the outrageous so that you no longer hold on to it. You, you just let it go. It's just... Yeah. Um, In there, out there. Yeah. Unfortunately, out there as well. Unfortunately, with a lot of power. <laughs> and that's really the problem. I mean, he, he says something about Mexicans, and the next thing we know, people are being shot in El Paso. Um, you know, it, it, even in places like um, the Northwest, migrant populations are still being employed to do the work, and then they call ICE before they have to pay them. So they have them harvest and do all that. And then before payday, they call in ICE and they're deported. Yesterday you did a reading, which some of you probably heard and some of you probably didn't. But you were reading from Citizen about Serena Williams because this is the US Open Times and you're a tennis nerd. But you're not just a tennis nerd. You have an issue called Serena Williams playing tennis in a very white space. Tell us a little about Serena. Well, Serena, Serena Williams is, for me, just um, the public example of dynamics that people go through all the time in their work, in their lives, in their lives. But with Serena, you get to see it, and you get to share it, And people get to, and for the case of Citizen, I needed a an example that was researchable, um, something that people wouldn't have to take my word for it. Because um, 
I think white, one of the, 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 the consequences of white defensiveness is the, the race to dismiss these moments as individual, as personal, as subjective, as oversensitivity, all of those things are ready to go. And so in that sense, I didn't want to use my life as an example. But Serena's life, when you have the repetition of these events over and over and over again, it becomes a nice sort of um, dish to look into. And so I, 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 I interviewed Serena for the New York Times and um, you're a journalist, so you know this. You know, you go in and you, you have the questions, and in some ways you want the piece to do something that other pieces haven't done, oh, yeah. right? That's, that's the dream. <laughs> that's the dream. You, you don't want to just repeat what has been said again and again and again. But one of the things that I found myself... Um, it was kind of like a deep sadness that I didn't want her to have to talk about her own subjugation. Mm. I needed to do it for the article, but I didn't want her having to look at her life in that way. And to have to reduce her accomplishments or mitigate them around the kind of racism she's had to negotiate. And so what happened in the interview was she would, I would say something and she would give me some, as Nelson Mandela said, I'm like, <laughs> some quote, I was just like, what? And, um, and I could see her resistance, her, her wanting to, to say, life's life, I move forward, da-da-da-da. So it was, it, was it a kind of survival strategy? I think so. I don't think you can go in there. And I, 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 I might be wrong, but I think part of what has prevented her from winning this next Grand Slam, because, you know, she's won away from the, the homophobic Margaret Court. And... Um, which is partly why I want her to get that last, <laughs> that last one, um, is I think she's trying to be good. She's trying to hold back her emotional responses. And because of that, she's not playing to her fullest. And why Serena is beloved by people, especially... Um, me, all right, no, especially <laughs> me, <laughs> is because she is, she over time has brought her full emotional self to the court. So if you piss her off, she's pissed off. If you make her happy, she's happy. If she, and there's, you don't seem to have a kind of um, negotiation of the self on, unlike her sister, Venus, who, you seem to get one Venus no matter what's happening. Whereas Serena seems to be cognizant of what is happening as it's happening. And, and so 
I think once you know it, you can't go back. And so it'll be interesting to see how she negotiates being a mother with a daughter who she has to be an example for, um, a woman who's playing people who hold her up as a mentor at this point in her career, and also somebody who is at the end of their career as um, somebody approaching 40, which, you know, Roger Federer, Roger Federer, now, who we should all want to be is Roger Federer. <laughs> because Roger Federer is such an interesting contrast. to They're both relatively the same age. They're both the top of their, their relative um, games. And, um, but Federer comes from such a privileged life. And Serena comes from a battle. And they've landed in the same place. And it's, but, but both are struggling with their aging and their brilliance at the same time. It's really fascinating. You are a nerd. <laughs> it's just really fascinating to watch. It's, it's a piece I, I kind of would like to write, the, the, sort of the two of them up against each other. That's, that sounds like a very, very good idea. The thing is that uh, a lot of the, the texts in here, for instance, have references, and in Citizens as well, because Serena, you can go and watch on YouTube. And if you print her name, it'll come up Serena Williams Angry, Serena Williams Meltdown, Serena, <laughs> this, this mm -hmm. kind of, because she has really been angry. She has been angry, and she should be angry. And she should be angry. And, she, and sometimes she shouldn't be angry, but she can't tell, <laughs> because <laughs> there's so many times when she should be angry. And so you, you sort of lose perspective in terms of how to read what's happening. But it's you. about her body as a black body in this white space. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I wrote the piece for The Times, I loved the t writing for The Times. My editor is a fantastic editor. But I handed in the piece and they said, the only thing that's missing from the piece is that you didn't write about Serena's body. And I said, what do you mean write about Serena's body? And they said, you know, Serena's body. The viewer, the readers want to hear about Serena's body. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. And then, then it came back again. The only thing that's missing. So I did this. Serena was wearing a jumpsuit when I interviewed her. And I wrote something like, Serena Williams is wearing an enviable jumpsuit. <laughs> I would like that jumpsuit. I would. And that was it. But, I, I, you know, this, it, 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 I think what people, and I, I am being generous here and not saying white, but what people um, don't understand is the way to stop the racism is to stop the racism. It's not, it's, you have to have an intervention. So you just don't do it. Just don't do it. Um, so, uh, but that piece, that piece in the New York Times was one, 
they sent me a list of every um, article that ended up quoting that piece. And what shocked me was it took till I wrote that piece for people to, to begin to see Serena. So what were all those other people seeing all those years? That's the thing. That's the thing. So you, uh, one has to really go in with a consciousness that what you're doing is a rerouting of a kind of white supremacist understanding of the world. This is something that you teach. Yeah. Tell us a little about how you prepare a course for a very diverse uh, group of students about whiteness. I mean, there's a lot of African-American studies, there's a lot of study into blackness, and, but whiteness isn't really studied, is it? No. Well, in the 1980s, there was a whiteness um, curriculum that began, and Toni Morrison was a part of that. Um, but people began to think that whiteness studies meant talking about Blondie <laughs> as a great singer, rather than looking at white dominance. Okay. And how white dominance plays in the, you know, so then it kind of, and then it was like all these white professors got confused about like this issue of centralizing whiteness. And, um, but now we're back again because actually Donald Trump has put us there. And, um, and so in the class, we really are interested in how white dominance has come to be what is perceived as normality. So that you read a book and it says, um, um, some people attended hangies on Sunday afternoon. And you, that's a line from Susan Sontag's. And we love Susan Sontag. She's amazing. But some people, the only black people who attended hangings, were hanging. So the only people who were attending the lynchings were white people. So why cannot you say white people attended lynchings on Sunday afternoons? What's wrong with actually naming the people who were there as white? The, um, I have never received as much hate mail as when that class went up. It was so bad, we put in a security system at our house. There are other professors who have shut down their classes. In Wisconsin, the government, the, um, the, the state government told the University of Wisconsin they would take away the school funding if they did not shut down that class. So it's not just idiosyncratic, um, don't talk about it, it's national policy. 1790 immigration policy, the first real immigration policy in the United States, said um, voting and land holding belongs to white Anglo-Saxon men. That's the standard. 
everything that happened from then to now has been, how do you open up that sentence? How do you open it up to include women? And not even just Anglo-Saxon. It's like, how do you include Italian men, Irish men, Greek men? You all were okay. But everybody else. So that's been the fight. And up till now, the one, even though blacks were given the vote, black men were given the vote in um, 1864, it was immediately taken away with what were called black codes that went on the state level. So you don't like the federal government. On the state level, you institute laws that nullify what the state has said must happen. And, and who did those? Lawmakers. 73% of elected officials in the United States are white men. 31% of the population. 93% of elected officials in the United States are white people. Governing the people. So how is it that the agenda is not white-centered? Obviously it's white-centered. And then you have what we now, I, I don't know if you've heard the term the squad, the four women in the house who are not white, send her back, refusal, presidential refusal to have them enter Israel. So that's what we do in the class. <laughs> we go through, what I try and do is run the historical facts up against the cultural facts and see sort of where we intersect. And then the students come up with their own projects. And at the end of the term, we have a public art um, opening, which includes everything from films to handmade books to, um, it's been very successful, I think. <laughs> we have so much to talk about and so little time left, uh, because I want you to end on a reading. But I did want to also in, on, on this uh, occasion ask you about using, the using of the I as in your poetry, because um, there was something I found so striking that uh, black people did not have an eye because they were seen as commodities. They, the law had to give them the eye. Is that correctly understood? Yeah, they were um, property. Under slavery, um, blacks were considered property. It wasn't, and it wasn't only in the United States. It was also in Britain, for example. So when um, do you know the Turner um, slave ship painting? That painting um, is of an event that happened. The, the captain got lost, and so the ships was traveling from Ghana to the West Indies. It got lost. It was in a storm. So they were running out of food. And so what the captain was, he took the black slaves and he dumped them overboard. Because the question was, if they died of illness, 
the insurance wouldn't cover them. But if you lost property, you can then make an insurance claim for the lost property. So there's, you know, it's Britain, and the, so by the time you have the United States and slavery in the United States, nobody is considered a person, and that continues. Like that, when, when, when I say anti-black slavery, that's really what I'm talking about. Black people are not considered people in the United States. If they were considered people, they would not be shot and left on the street for four hours as Michael Brown's body was. You know, it's just a fact. Um, if a white, blonde, and blonde is operative, girl goes missing, the entire country shuts down. You can kill as many black people as you want, and white people don't even remember their names. You know, so that's just, I'm not being hyperbolic, I'm just referring to what has happened. And so the legacy of that is the fact that not only were black people considered property, whiteness then became a valued property in and of itself, which is the funny turn that happened. And so now whiteness is itself property. So the space is white. And if a black person walks into the space, they have somehow entered a white space, even though it's just a building. And whiteness is now valued as property. So you cannot go there. You cannot enter there. I mean, you know, and that's probably true in Europe too, that you walk into a space. And what always happens to me is that someone comes up to me and they say, how can I help you? Can I help you? And there are a hundred people in the store. But I get special treatment. Can I help you? And I say, no, I'm okay. And then they move, but within sight of me. So then I turn around and I wave. <laughs> I'm doing okay, it's okay. You can calm down. But it is, so that's been the sort of reverse of this notion of property, that now the spaces are considered white. It's funny, but it's not funny at all. Well, it's, it's sort of funny. It's sort of funny. <laughs> okay, your other self, Brian Stevenson, says that you must never give up hope. And I think he learned that from Rosa Parks, who he met. Um, I, I think it's hopeful to read your literature. So thank you for giving us that thank hope. You. And will you yes, please uh, end this by reading this for us? So this, I'm going to read, um, the, the, big, the book begins with a series of microaggressions. These are small moments that happen in day to day. And this was um, told to me by a professor who teaches on the West Coast. And I'm, I'm telling you this because the fantasy of Northern California is that it is like the land of the open-minded um, yoga <laughs> Buddhist extreme wealth. The new therapist specializes in trauma counseling. 
You have only ever spoken on the phone. Her house has a side gate that leads to a back entrance she uses for patients. You walk down a path bordered on both sides with deer grass and rosemary to the gate, which turns out to be locked. At the front door, the bell is a small round disc that you press firmly. When the door finally opens, the woman standing there yells at the top of her lungs, get away from my house, what are you doing in my yard? It's as if a wounded Doberman pincher or a German shepherd has gained the power of speech. And though you back up a few steps, you manage to tell her you have an appointment. You have an appointment? She spits back. Then she pauses. Everything pauses. Oh, she says, followed by, oh yes, that's right, I'm sorry, I am so, so sorry. was interviewed by Sunerifbya in 2019. The interview was edited by Roxanne Bagashirin Lerkesen. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstel. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. Or you can find them on YouTube. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening.